Peter, if you turn your Bibles there, we'll be picking it up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It's in the New Testament, after Hebrews and James, before 2 Peter and the 1st, 2nd, 3rd Johns, nestled there towards the back of your New Testament. I'm just going to begin this morning by reading. So if you find 1 Peter chapter 1, you can do verse 13 through the end of the chapter. First Peter 1 Peter 1:13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be wrought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believing in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Um, We've been studying this book now for three weeks. And the main theme of the book and of this series uh, is that we are resident aliens with a mission. Talked about this the first week. Um, We are aliens. As Christians in this world... Uh, we're aliens. We're just different. We're fundamentally different from everybody else. We're different because we have been born again, because we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, who has transformed us to make us like Christ, and the rest of the world doesn't have that. And that's a huge difference. It's so different that we are like aliens. We're, we're just a different species from the rest of the, of the world. But we're not so different that God says, okay, time to, to just get out of here. God didn't save us and, and remove us from this world uh, to just be with him, but he left us here. In fact, he placed us here to be residents. So we're aliens, but we're also residents. We're living in the midst of a foreign culture. Uh, we're living in the place where he's called us, in, in this community of Metamora and Washington and Peoria and, and wherever you are, and in your workplace and in, in, your, in your home. We're here as aliens, but we're residents. And he left us here as residents for a mission, uh, the mission being that we are to live, to, to, to honor and glorify God. And as we do that, this life of love towards God, love towards others, the people around us will say, you are different, but in a very good way. And we want to be like you. We want to be transformed like you've been transformed. Where do you get that power to love? And we'll point them to Jesus. And they'll believe in him and they'll be born again. And they'll join the family. See, God has called us to be resident aliens with a mission And today, as we pick up the the study of this book in verse 13, we're going to run into some commands. 
Uh, so, so far we've gotten just some groundwork laid where God said, you're resident aliens with a mission. Here's what makes you different. Here's your hope. And now we're going to start to get some commands. What are the things that we do that make us different? And the big one that sums up all the other ones that we're going to see today is the one that comes in verse 16, in verse uh, 15 and 16. It's this command to be holy. God says, be holy. Uh, now, this is a really big command. And it's also a command that can get really un- misunderstood. Um, it, 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 if you just start with this command, that, that, that's where you get the misunderstanding. If you, just, if you just start with be holy, like it just falls out of heaven somewhere, and this is, this is what Christianity is all about, it's just be holy. If you, just, if you let that float off by itself, then you get all sorts of misunderstandings, and you get a lot of people who say, well, I don't want to be a Christian then. If that's what Christianity is, it's just this command to be holy. You get a whole bunch of non-Christians who say, well, I don't, uh, don't want to change my life. I don't want to act a different way. I don't want someone telling me what to do. I'm not going to do that. Or you get other non-Christians who say, I can't do that. Uh, if that's what the standard is, I know I can't live up to that, so I'm not even going to try. Uh, you get Christians who say, if that's what it's all about, then I'm not even going to try. And that's why some of us function like, um, like resident residents instead of resident aliens, just blending in with everybody else because, well, I, I can't possibly attain holiness. And then you get other Christians, and this may be the worst type, who say, um, I understand the command to be holy, I can't do it, but I'm going to pretend like I can. And they function as hypocrites, on the outside looking holy, but on the inside, um, you know, rotting tombs. And the world looks at them and says, well, I don't want any of that either. See, and all these problems come when we take this command, this biblical command to be holy, and we set it off by itself and say, well, that must be the essence of Christianity. It must be about rules and moral improvement and being holy. And when you do that, people just reject Christianity because they say, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. The main thing that I want to show you from the passage today, though, is that that's not how the Bible functions. That's not how the command to be holy functions in the Bible. It's never by itself. It's never just, the Bible never just gives us a set of rules and lists and says, this is the essence of what it means to follow God, do that. But it's always, always grounded in the prior free grace of God. The command to be holy is always connected and dependent on the gospel. Now, you don't have to believe me on that yet. I'm going to prove that today. That's that's the main point of today's message. But I want to show you that today from our passage, that this command to be holy, that so many people take as the essence of the Christian life, is really something that comes after you get the essence of the Christian life. When you get the gospel right, then you understand the commands to be holy. I'm going to show you this by looking at the commands that we have in our passage. And if you were to look through this in in the original Greek, it's very clear that there are four specific commands. Uh, Some of the various parts of speech may be translated in your translation as different commands, but there are four specific commands, imperatives, that are here in our passage. And what I want to do this morning is walk through each command. And for each command, I want to look at two things. First, what is true and then what to do. Okay, this is how the Bible always functions. There's, there's, there's something that is true, and that thing that's true then empowers and enables you to do that thing that's commanded, what to do. So that's where we're headed today. We're going to look at these four commands. We're going to start with the first one, 
which comes uh, in verse 13. And the command number one is, set your hope on grace. See, it's verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a really easy one to start with because the command itself is a command to remember the gospel. So let's, let's go through this. What is true here in this passage in verses 13 and 14? Uh, well, well, first of all, he says, set your hope fully on the grace. He, he's, he's reminding us, Peter's reminding us of all the things that he's talked about in the previous 12 verses. So let's not forget these things. I'll, we'll recap for you if you weren't here last week. He says, set your hope on the grace. Hope was what we talked about last week, what God has done for us in the past and in the future and right now in the present. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, in the past, that God caused us to be born again to a living hope. So what God did in the past. He, he, he gave us a new birth into a new family. And then verse 4, he says, we've been born again to an inheritance. So when we were born again, we were born into a wealthy family, the family of God, and that inheritance that we're waiting for, he says, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, the salvation of your souls. And meanwhile, in the present, we're comforted to know in verse 5 that God himself is guarding us so that we will be guaranteed to receive this inheritance. In verse 5, by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Now, as I proved last week, you could preach a whole sermon on this passage, but uh, I just want to remind you of this. That when Peter says, set your hope on the grace to be revealed, he's drawing in a whole host of things that are true. He wants you to remember. And then he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Set your hope on these things. So there's a therefore. This happens here in this passage. It happens all the time in Paul's letters. You read the first half of the letter, and then there's this therefore. And all of a sudden, it seems like he switches from talking about all this theology to now all these practical things to do. And, and we think if we could just make a cliff notes of Paul, we would take all the practical commands at the end and say, this is the essence of Christianity. Let's just do everything after the therefore. But if you start after the therefore, you don't have any grounding. You don't have any reason why to do it. You end up with legalism and hypocrisy and despair. But Peter, like Paul, because they're both um, inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and godly, uh, they know that the Christian life is not about bare commands. It's got to begin with the truth of the gospel. And so when Peter gives us the what to do, the first what to do that he gives us is set your hope on grace. He's explicitly teaching us before you do anything. Right here in, in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Okay, if, if, you're, if you're getting ready to go, if you're getting ready to start obeying Christ, that's good. You want to obey Christ, that's great. If you're getting ready, the first thing you've got to do, set your mind on hope. Set your mind on the gospel. And then he keeps following this pattern for the next three commands. So let's look at these. And I hope it will be abundantly clear as to what I'm talking about. Command number two is the big one. He says, be holy in all your conduct. This shows up in verses 15 and 16. He says, since the one who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So let's start with this. What is true in this passage? What is true? Well, first of all, we see that God is holy. God is holy. That's pretty clear. The one who called you is holy. Verse 16, be holy for I am holy. 
This is a major theme in the Bible, the holiness of God. Major theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right here, actually, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament in verse 16. There's a couple places in Leviticus where this might come from, either 11.44 or 19.2. But there's passages in the Old Testament where God says, I am holy, so you need to be holy. Now, the Old Testament, you know, is written in Hebrew, and and the word that's used here in the Hebrew, uh, the root of that just means to be separate, or, or just actually the root is to cut or to separate. And so the word itself, to be holy, at its base level, just means to be separate, to be set apart. So when you think about God and his holiness, one aspect of that is that he is set apart from sin. His holiness means that there's no sin in him. He's completely removed, completely separate from sin. To be holy is to have no sin whatsoever. But on the flip side, it's, it's not just that he doesn't have any sin, but that he is the complete essence of righteousness. He is the epitome of of perfection and holiness. He's not just set apart from sin. God is set apart from everything. He is unique. There is no one like him. He alone is God. And that's an aspect of his holiness. He is so great and so glorious that when you look in Isaiah chapter 6, this vision that Isaiah has of God, one of the things Isaiah sees is that there's these heavenly beings, these seraphim, and their job the only thing that they do all the time, 24-7 for all eternity, is they fly around God and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is completely unique, completely separate from sin and from everything. And that's what it means when it says that he is holy. So tuck that one away. That's one thing that's true. Another thing that's true, Peter says, is Uh, that we were following our passions. We were ignorantly following our passions. Uh, Verse 14 says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So while God is, is busy being holy, completely separated from sin, completely unique and wonderful and awesome, we uh, were, were following the passions of our ignorance. Uh, and, and a picture that comes to mind for me here, and maybe you'll think I'm weird for thinking this, but it's, it's a picture of just like a, a, a dumb animal that cannot help but follow uh, their, their desires. You know, like a, like a male dog that smells a female in heat, and he's just going to go after that dog, right? You, you can't sit down and reason with the dog and say, look, this is, she's not even that pretty, uh, you know, just, just stay here. For, you, know, you have to cage up the dog, and still they'll try to go after it, because the animal just responds to the desire that's in it, and it cannot do anything else. It's ignorant. It's all he's got. And Peter says, this is kind of what you were like. You were just conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You didn't know any better, and so all you did is, oh, I have this desire, I'm going to chase after that. Oh, I have this feeling, I'm going to chase after that. You're a slave to your stomach and to your passions and your desires. That's what you were like. That's another thing that's true. But then, here's the amazing thing. The third thing that's true is that God called us to be his children. Right there in verse, uh, in verse 14, uh, it says that we are his children now, his obedient children. Verse 15, it says, he who called you is holy. Uh, this, is, this is what happened. We were slaves to our passions and our desires, just ignorantly following whatever we want, living in disgusting sin. And God called us. And God called us to be his children. This holy God, this perfect one, called us to be his children. These are the things that are true. Now, what do you do with that? 
Well, I think if you've been following along, if you, if you get this, if, I, if I've done an adequate job of explaining it, I hardly need to tell you the command. But it's, it's be holy. What do you do with this? You be holy. If there's a God who is holy and perfect and separate from sin, and that God has ransomed you from a futile lifestyle of pursuing ignorant passions and lusts, and he's called you to be his children, what else can you do? But now desire to be like him, but desire to please him, desire to pursue a lifestyle of holiness. See, the, the gospel, and that's the gospel right there, right? God is holy, you are sinful, God has saved you. The gospel makes sense of the command to be holy. Since God is holy and good and perfect and lovely and righteous, and he has saved you from a life of filth and destruction and despair, are you going to go back to your vomit? Are you, are you going to go back to that former way of life? Or are you going to naturally respond by pursuing the very character of the God who called you? See, be holy because I am holy. The what is true of the gospel inevitably leads to the what to do of the command. The same pattern comes up again with the next command. Command number three Conduct yourself with proper fear. This command's a little tougher to understand, so you just have to hold that thought until we get there. I want to start with the what to do, or sorry, with the what to tr- what is true again. So here's our command. This is in verse 17. It says, "Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." There's the command: conduct yourself with fear. What is true, though, in this passage? We're going to look here in verses 17 through 21. One thing that's true, and, and again, this is going to sound familiar, because he's just telling us the gospel again. Okay? I'm not trying to be boring. I'm trying to be faithful to the scripture. The scripture is gloriously redundant in the amount of times that it tells us the gospel. So let's hear it again. What is true? Uh, number one, we were living futile lives. Look at verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. I'm not going to belabor this because we just talked about it, but he says it again. The way of life that you had before, that you inherited from your parents, just the normal way the world works, is futile. It's vain. It's empty. It has no life in it. So that's what you were. That's what's true. But, the glorious truth of the gospel, number two, you were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. It's at verse 18 and 19. You're ransomed from these futile ways. Not with, not with perishable stuff like money, not, not, no one bought you with silver or gold or U.S. dollars. Uh, you were ransomed with the blood of Jesus. Mark 10.45, you remember this? The theme verse of Mark, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, when we were in our futile ways, our futility, the problem was that we couldn't save ourselves. We were slaves to our passions and we were debtors to God the debt that we had to pay for our sin was death, and we couldn't pay that for ourselves. So Jesus came, and he lived that life in our place, and he died giving his life, his life as a lamb, perfect. What's it say here? A lamb without blemish or spot, verse 19. He had no sin. He offered his blood, the most precious commodity in the universe. And with his blood, he purchased your salvation. So we were living futile lives. We were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. What else is true here? You were saved to live for God. 
Verse 21, I want you to notice at the end of verse 20, 21, depending on your translation, there's, there's some word there that implies a purpose. Uh, in mine it says, so that your faith and hope are in God. Some of you says so or that. There's this idea of purpose, that you were saved so that your faith and hope would be in God. This is why God saved you. God saved you. He ransomed you, paid this great price so that you would follow him. I saw this back in verse 2 of chapter 1. Remember, obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood go together. You were saved with a mis- for a mission. You're saved by God so that you would live for God. Fourth thing that's true, and we'll bring it together. Fourth thing that's true, you see in verse 17 at the beginning, our Father is also an impartial judge. See that in verse 17? We call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So our Father, the fact that God is our Father, doesn't mean that he lets us get away with everything. He's still an impartial judge who judges our deeds. All right, these are the four things that we've got here. We've got, we're living futile lives, we're ransomed by the blood of Jesus, we were saved to live for God, and our Father is an impartial judge. That's what's true here. What do we do with that? Well, you put those four things in the blender, you mix them up, you pour it out, here's what you get. The command from Peter here. Live with proper fear. And just to make it a little more explicit for us, I would say live with proper fear of God's discipline. I'll tell you where I get that word, and then I'll show you how this is grounded in the gospel. Okay? I, I think it's best for us to, to frame it this way, to say live with proper fear of God's discipline. Uh, because the fear of God is a big topic. Uh, it's a big, it, you go a lot of ways with that. I think this is what Peter's talking about specifically here, is the fear of God's discipline for believers. The reason why I think that is that, first of all, it can't mean a fear that you're going to lose your salvation. Not because I think that would be, that, that, that's just a great doctrine. I think it is a great doctrine, but I'm not saying it can't be that just because I want it to be that way. No, I'm saying that because that's what the scriptures have already taught us. When we, when we looked in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, uh, we saw that God's power is guarding us through faith for our salvation. We know that when you believe, when you're born again, at that moment you get sealed by the Holy Spirit and you are kept, you are secure, you're going to make it. So there's no room for a fear that you're going to lose that salvation. So we must be talking about something else. Now another possible option is that, um, and in some of your translations, it says something like live with proper reverence or live with reverent awe. And that's okay, except in our, when we read that, I think we lose some of the power of what he's saying. Because for us, when we think about being reverent before God, or at least for me, you think of uh, being quiet while you're praying, uh, or maybe closing your eyes during worship, uh, you know, just not, not being uh, raucous or something like that. that. That's really not what's in view here. There's more of an actual fear component. Uh, one of the most important cross-references I found as I was looking through this came from the life of Peter himself in the book of Acts. Where in Acts chapter 5, two people come up, a husband and wife, after each other. Ananias and Sapphira were their names. And they came and they, they told Peter in the church that they had sold a field for X amount of dollars and they wanted to give all that money to the church, when in reality they'd sold it for more than that and they were keeping some for themselves. And when they told that story to the church, Peter called them out on it and said, you're not lying to me but to the Holy Spirit. And instantly, the Holy Spirit killed them. 
And in response to that, at the end of Acts, it says, the whole church was filled with great fear. The same word here. And it's a good thing. The church was filled with fear, it said, and it, it multiplied and grew. It was, it's a proper response. It was a good thing that the church was filled with fear. That when somebody lied to God, they were killed. That's more the sense of what's happening here. Peter says, the same Peter who saw that happen, he says, live with proper fear of God's discipline. He's saying if you're going to live the life of faith as a Christian, you need to recognize that there are still consequences for you and you need to live your life as if those consequences could really happen to you. Now, somebody might point to a verse that says something like, perfect love drives out fear. What about that, Pastor? And I think that's true. Scripture, that's right. I think it's talking about the perfect love uh, that drives out fear of condemnation. The love that drives out fear that you're going to lose your salvation. There is no room for that in the gospel, but there is room for fear of God's discipline. And I think we'd be able to understand that if we were better fathers and parents and we had a capacity to be both loving and... uh, loving in our discipline um, rather than thinking that the only options are to be loving and to be accepting all the time. So how does this flow out of the gospel? Um, you know, this is my main argument. I've got to prove that this flows out of the gospel, and it actually does. This fear of God flows from the gospel. So look at what Peter's emphasizing in our passage. He's saying, first of all, that when you were ransomed, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. So God bought you. Okay, that's part of the gospel that God bought you. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And that price was the greatest price in the universe. So just think about this. If you go to a, a car dealership and you, you find a, a certified pre-owned used car, whatever they call them these days, and, and you plunk down thousands and thousands of dollars for this car, and then you drive it off of the lot, and the next morning it doesn't start, and it doesn't work, it doesn't accomplish the purpose for which you bought it, you have a right to be angry with the person who sold you that car and that person ought to fear you or at the very least they ought to fear the lemon laws that are going to prosecute them and it's that fear in fact of those lemon laws that keeps some people on the straight and narrow selling you cars that are actually reliable instead of taking your money for lemons. Okay, now, now think about that in, in respect to your salvation Uh, Jesus Christ, God the Father, has bought you. And he's plunked down the precious blood of Christ for you. He has the right, as your new owner, to expect that you live for the purpose for which he bought you. And if you don't, he has the right to be angry with you and to discipline you that you might walk again in the purpose for which he's bought you. And if you say, oh, but isn't he my father? My father would never do anything like that. That's why Peter says in verse 17, if you call on him as father, remember that he's also a judge who judges impartially. Notice he says God is our father, not our grandfather. He's not here to spoil you. And then aside, I just hate that word. I mean, I don't want my children spoiled. Do you really want to spoil my children? Uh, God is not here to spoil you. He's here to make you the person that you're supposed to be. He's here to redeem you, to call you to holiness, which is the perfect plan for you. And so, of course, your father is going to bring discipline in your life. 
when you walk away from his truth. Because he loves you. Not in spite of his love for you, but precisely because he loves you. If you choose to trample the grace of God underfoot and to say, oh, this blood of Jesus, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever I want because God's got to forgive me anyway. He's going to bring discipline in your life to draw you back to walking in faith in him. You can take, I mean, I, I almost hesitated to talk about this, but it's in the scripture, so we've got to submit to this, right? Because uh, you could just take this so many wrong ways. You could take this so many wrong ways. And probably uh, the people that, that, right, that coming into today didn't have much of a fear of God, you're probably going to take this the wrong way and just kind of blow it off and be like, oh, you know, it just really means reverence. You're just going to pretty much leave the same way you were. And everybody who came here today who has already had a fear of God and had a sensitive conscience, you're probably going to leave here even more burdened and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble now. Okay, so just switch those. Okay, if you came here today and you, had, you just never thought at all about the fear of God, you never thought at all about his disciplining function of his love for you, you didn't give you know, two cents thought. If, you're, if your default function is to think, well, I can just go ahead and do this and God will forgive me anyway because that's the gospel, then what you really need is to remember that God who is your father and loves you is also the judge who disciplines you. And then if you take this, this idea that the grace of God means I can do whatever I want and God's got to forgive me anyway, then what you're doing is taking this infinite, precious blood of Jesus and you're just considering it to be garbage. You're trampling underfoot to paying no regard to the price that God has paid to save you. But if on the other hand, you're, you're someone who came here today and you were just burdened. You have a sensitive conscience. You feel like everything that you do, you know, every bad thing that happens is somehow God getting you because you didn't do something right. Look, I want you to hear that God, who is your judge, is also your father, who loves you. He's not a capricious father. He's not a vindictive father who's, who's just watching for you to screw up so that he can slap you. He's a God who only gives you the discipline that you need to return to him. And it's always out of love. We're going to talk more about suffering as we go through 1 Peter because it's one of the major themes. But you need to know this, and this is kind of an aside here, but if, you th- if you're worried now um, that, that like every bad thing that happens to you is somehow tied to your performance... And you're like, well, this bad thing happened, so what did I do wrong to make that bad thing happen? Okay, just know that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. Okay? I'm talking about the, the Romans 6, 1 kind of people who say, shall we keep on sinning so that grace can increase? By no means. Obviously not. Because if you think that, then you don't understand the gospel. Okay? And I also don't want you to think, well, if I obey perfectly, does that mean I'll never suffer? Now, we'll, we'll cover that, too. There's two kinds of suffering. There's suffering for doing good, which God gives to us as a, as a gift, even. We rejoice in that. And then there's suffering for doing evil, which just means that you're an idiot, and you're sinning, and you're, God is disciplining you, and you need to repent. Right? So, suffering for doing good, rejoice. Suffering for doing evil, repent. There's a lot of stuff in there. The main idea I want you to get, I want you to see, the command flows from the truth of the gospel. If you understand that Jesus has bought you, then you recognize that you have a responsibility to live before him. And there's consequences if you trample that grace underfoot. The fourth one will be brief because we'll talk about this more in the next couple weeks. It's command number four is to love one another. 
In verse 22, we get this command. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Two things that are true in this passage from 22 to 25. Uh, the first one is that you've been born again into an eternal family. You know, when we talk about being born again, it's family language. Right? You're born into a family. God is your father. And if God is your father, and God is my father, and God is your father, and God is your father, then that means that we're all in the same family. We're in the family of God. He's our father, and that makes us brothers and sisters. So what's true about the gospel is that we've been born into a new family, and it's an imperishable family. See that in verse 23. You've not been born of perishable seed. Uh, your earthly family is perishable. It, uh, you know, we all you know, eventually lose one another through death, or very common today, the family breaks up or the family moves apart. Just the, the families that we have in this world are not permanent. But this new family that we have, it's an imperishable family. It's a family that's born by the word of God that will never end. So the good news, bad news, uh, both. You're stuck with me. You're stuck with one another. Um, the truth of the gospel is that we've all, who are Christians, have been born into an eternal family. Something that's true. Uh, the other thing I want you to notice that's true is that this family is formed by the gospel of grace. This word of God that, that is preached to you, that causes you to believe, is the gospel. In verse 25, it's, it's the good news that was preached to you. So this family that we live in is a family that's characterized by grace and mercy and forgiveness. I've been born again by the grace of God. You've been born again by the grace of God. We're all here together. What does that mean? How should we act towards one another? We should love each other. It's just obvious. It's one of those things you shouldn't even have to say it. If we're in the same family, and it's a family that's formed by the love of God being poured out on us, well, then the natural function of me to you and you to me and you to one another is to love each other. As God has shown mercy to you, show mercy to one another. As God has poured his love out on you, show that love to each other. You're going to be stuck with each other for all eternity. You might as well begin developing those healthy relationships now. See, God has called us to holiness. There's a lot of commands in the Bible. Those commands are an inescapable part of the Christian life. They're good. It's God saying, this is how to live. This is, this is a good life. Live in it. But we run into so many problems. If we separate those commands from the gospel, we start to think, oh, I can do it on my own. And you end up in despair or legalism or hypocrisy. But when you remember to keep it tied in with the gospel, like Peter does here, like is woven throughout all of Scripture, then you get the power. You get the power to obey. You get the desire to obey. And you're reminded of the grace when you fail. So if you're having a hard time with this command to be holy, if you're having a hard time even wanting to be holy, if, if, if you've got a pattern of sin going on in your life right now and you're suffering some consequences for it, if you're having a hard time loving another believer, the answer is not to, well, just look at the command and see what God tells you to do and do it. A little finger wagging, try harder. That's what the Bible says. If you can't do it, at least pretend, because I don't want to see your sin. Now, the answer is to go back to the gospel. You're a sinner. Of course you can't do it on your own. Oh, but you're not on your own. 
God has called you. He's given you new life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Oh, would you rest in the gospel? Would you believe the truth of the gospel? Would you long to be holy as the one who has called you as holy? As you go back to the cross, the precious blood of Jesus, that gospel empowers you to obey. If we cling to the cross, we will become a people who is holy, as our God is holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us on our own, that you have not set the bar infinitely high and said, good luck. Oh, but that you have come down and you have rescued us from our futile pursuit of our passions and lusts and our, our hatred of one another, our, our backbiting, our gossip, our lust, our sin, our, our worry, our fear, our anger, our coveting our idolatry, all these things. Lord, this is where we were, this is where we live so often. And yet in your love you have come and called us to be holy. Lord, would you stir our affections as we look at the cross, stir our hearts to want to please you, to want to live for you. Help us to recognize the consequences of our actions and to live with proper awe and respect and fear of you as our judge. But thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that our fear is not a fear of losing our salvation, but that we are secure. And we know that whatever comes from your hand is for our good to make us more like you. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.